KHP, Patreon exclusive, 004, Somerville. I have a story for you from my teens. It was during the beginning of my 10th grade year of high school. I had just celebrated my 16th birthday a few weeks earlier. Halloween weekend had finally arrived, and Halloween actually fell on a Saturday this year. My friends and I were preparing to have a weekend of mindless video games, candy, and nonstop fun. We all gathered at my parents' house. This decision was made long in advance, as my parents' home was in the nicest neighborhood and had the best spots for candy. We had all picked out or created our costumes. I was going as a chainsaw attack victim. Pretty original, I guess. My friends were going as a gross scarecrow, generic army guy, and some musician named Buckethead. Like I was saying, Halloween was on a Saturday this year. It was Friday, the day before Halloween, and James, the last of our little group of four, had just arrived, being dropped off by his parents. I opened the door for James and helped carry his bags in. We all gathered in the basement and began playing video games. I had a Nintendo 64 that I had gotten the previous Christmas, and we all enjoyed playing 007 Goldeneye, Mario Kart, and Mario Party. After a few rounds of Goldeneye, we heard a creak on the stairs behind us. We turned around and saw Bryce, my brother, peering down at us with a smile that told me he was up to no good. Bryce was almost five years older than me. He had turned 20 in March and had been getting into trouble since he was 14. His first big mistake was getting caught stealing my parents' liquor. His most recent addition to the list was getting a DUI while underage and losing his license. What are you guys up to? he asked quizzically. Hey, idiot, what does it look like? I jeered, waving an arm at the array of games, controllers, and cords. Thought you'd be working on your Halloween shit, he said with a chuckle, looking at our pile of costumes piled in the corner. Guess you're done with that, though. Go back upstairs and leave us alone, I asked nicely, almost taking a pleading tone. Fine, Bryce said, standing up. But I thought your friends would want to hear what I did last night. It was pretty scary. My friends looked at each other, glances that said they were curious, but unsure of what he was offering. Bryce picked up on this, too, taking it as his opportunity to jump down the remaining stairs and plop his ass down on the couch. You dumbasses ever heard of the old maid's house? He questioned, looking at us. We shook our heads and mumbled, no. Jesus, okay. Well, it's like a half mile from here. He pointed in a direction. That way. Me and a few of the guys broke into it last night to look around and see if the stories are true. He looked at us for some sort of reaction. What are the stories? Damien asked. Bryce smiled. That sly smile I learned not to trust. So, you know how when you head down the hill towards town, there's that big mansion-looking white house near the road and that overgrown driveway next to it? That big white house is the Somerville's house. 
some guy named Herman Somerville owned it, and someone from his family probably still does, a grandchild or something. Well, follow that shitty overgrown driveway back in the woods a few thousand feet, and you'll see an older Victorian-looking mansion sitting among the trees. It's not from Victorian times, though. Herman built it for his daughter, who loved the style. Why'd he build an old mansion for his kid? I quizzed, trying to call him out on his story. Well, you see, Anne Somerville, his daughter, was a monster. I mean, she was nasty. A disfigured face, warts and moles all over her. She had a limp and a hunchback. A real ugly bitch. So, Herman knew Anne was never going to marry or bring him grandkids. So he just kind of pushed her off to the side, built her whatever kind of house she wanted, and then let her stay there, hidden from the world. We were all mesmerized. Even though Bryce was a bit of a dick, we believed his story so far. Anne was harassed by kids in town, and given distrustful looks by parents and members of town. She stayed secluded in her home. Eventually, Herman died, and the money was split between his three kids. Even a small part of Herman's money was a fortune to a regular person. Anne lived off her father's wealth until her death. People said during her life they'd see cars and people go up the driveway. Thought they were Anne's siblings, dropping off their kids for a weekend at old ugly Aunt Anne's. Anne died in the 70s and was found a few days later by her brother and their family. Complications with her conditions caused her to die at 45. So why'd you go there? What'd you see? Mike eagerly asked. A few of us snuck back there after dark, avoiding the lampposts outside of the Somerville house and going to the old maid's house. The house is boarded up, but I know a secret way in. See, we pulled off part of the plywood that covers the front door. There's a hammer that we hid behind the tree by the porch. You can pull the nails out and nail them back in when you leave. Just pull the corner back, crawl inside the house. Boom. Done. Easy. People say that Anne Somerville still haunts the place, regretting that she couldn't live a normal life because of her deformities. People say that she'll try to hurt or attack anyone that breaks in. You know Jenna Woods? Yeah, we knew Jenna. She hung out with Bryce and his friends every once in a while. Bryce seemed to get more serious. Well, Jenna went in there about two months ago, and something happened to her. You saw her leg, right? Those marks? She got those when she went in the house. Said she was up in the attic. Suddenly felt a burning on her leg. She pulled up her jeans, saw the marks all red and blistered. We had seen Jenna's leg when she and her friends had come over to swim in our pool. Of course, all of us teenage boys weren't going to complain about older girls in bikinis. But we had all noticed Jenna's leg towards the end of summer. Those three red gashes on the lower part of her calf. We never knew what it was from, or how long they'd been there. Theories of a cat scratch childhood accident, or an abusive ex were some of the ideas. Supernatural, spiteful, old woman ghost claws was not one of them. Jenna said that they brought a Ouija board into the house 
and tried to contact Anne. The board spelled out L-E-A-V-E, leave, and as the final letter was revealed, they heard a door upstairs. Her group of friends went to investigate and eventually found their way in the attic. That's when the burn on her leg happened. As they were leaving, just as they climbed out of the basement, they heard voices in the house. Jenna said it was an old lady laughing, but others said it was just mumblings and muffled sounds. After that, the basement entrance was blocked with logs and trees by the owners. There was no way available to get in until we made one last night. Bryce smirked and looked at me. He knew my friends would want to go check the place out now that he had given them the proverbial key to the place. Well, that's my story. I'll get out of your hair and let you little shits get back to your games. With that, he stood up and walked back upstairs. We barely got through one round of Mario Party before James piped up. So are we going to the old Somerville place? It was the old maid's house, I corrected. Whatever, are we going? As we usually did to decide what we were doing, we took a vote. It's how we decided on my place for Halloween, what games we played, and where we went on bike rides. I was outvoted three to one to go to the house. We got changed into more acceptable clothes for breaking into a creepy abandoned house. Dark colored clothes to blend into the night. We already had them packed for a late night game of jailbreak that we were supposed to play instead of going to the old maid's house. We played video games until about seven. The sun had gone down around six, and it was thoroughly dark at this point. We grabbed some flashlights, put on our shoes, and stepped onto my front porch. We sat illuminated in the light from the porch. A soft breeze was blowing dried leaves across the yard, creating a skittering sound like a creature running. We decided to walk along the edge of the road. If any headlights were seen coming towards us, we'd scatter, jumping behind trees, in ditches, or whatever we could find to keep from being seen. We would go to the Somerville mansion and look for the lamps that Bryce had mentioned and stay out of their lights. We would get onto the old driveway and go back to the old maid's house. We navigated the roads, feeling like special forces on a mission to infiltrate an enemy base without being seen. We saw headlights just twice, and each time we ducked behind trees, dove into ditches, or just ran until we found suitable cover. The Somerville Mansion was maybe a thousand feet from my house. Its large, rounded structure sat, overlooking the hillside it resided on the top of. Small electric candles in the windows gave us small glimpses into the rooms behind them, showing us a chandelier, curtains, or just blank walls. Sitting along the edge of the property, near the road, were a few large lamp posts, with glowing orbs on them, lighting up the perimeter of the yard. On the downhill side of the yard was a line of trees, and an old overgrown driveway. A large, narrow stone 
maybe one foot wide, four foot tall, rounded on the top like a gravestone, with the letters J34 sat to the right of the overgrown driveway. I was never sure what this stone meant, J34. Later in life, I realized that it was an old marker from the town's railroad. J34 was Junction 34. At the time, though, we thought it was some strange way they displayed addresses. I'm not really sure why it was put there in the first place. So, there was the Somerville Mansion Yard, the row of trees, and the old abandoned driveway. Another row of trees next to the old driveway. And then a large field with a small fence around it. We decided to crawl under the fence, out of the light, and go through the field until we could get back onto the driveway. The fence wire was maybe a foot, foot and a half above the ground, enough for us boys to crawl under. We walked through the field and crawled under the fence again, back onto the driveway. Our eyes were finally readjusting to the darkness after looking at the lamps on the front house. We could see the driveway laid out before us. The trees that were only inches from the overgrown road at the beginning were now three or four feet from the road, making the lane feel much more spacious. We walked slowly, creeping up towards a mansion that we could not yet see. We didn't dare turn our flashlights on either, for fear of someone spotting us and calling the police. The last thing I wanted on my record was a breaking and entering charge. We must have walked about ten minutes before one of the row of trees, the ones on our left, stopped, and a large opening sat before us. Through the slightly moonlit sky, a large, dark, looming structure sat on the edge of this clearing. Quickly turning on a flashlight, We shined it across the clearing. It illuminated a small, rocky wall, roughly two feet high, and seemed to show the perimeter of a garden or a courtyard. The light also showed us the house. Two stories tall, but each floor was at least ten to twelve feet high, judging by the spacing of the windows. Orangish-red painted wooden siding with white trim around the eaves, windows, and corners were visible. The first floor had boards and plywood blocking our entry. The second floor had nothing. Apparently, a ladder was too much to drag back there. We turned off the flashlight and walked across the courtyard slowly. As we neared the far edge of it, I heard a quick shout before a loud thud. All of us But one turned our lights on and pointed them at the sound. Mike laid at the bottom of a hole, face down. The hole was about seven feet deep. Rough cement walls lined the edge of the hole. The bottom was covered in dirt and grass from decades of neglect. I'm assuming this sort of cushioned his fall and saved him. We yelled down to him asking if he was okay. He slowly moved his head to the side and breathed, 
He had the wind knocked out of him, but he managed the croak out of soft, Yeah. He stood up after a few seconds and patted himself, making sure that he wasn't bleeding or had any broken bones. We shined our flashlights in the hole, looking for a way to get Mike out. There was a small pile of dirt and debris at one end. It would get Mike close to us. We reached down, and Mike raised his hand and jumped. All of us grabbed onto him as we could and began pulling Mike out of the hole. Once Mike escaped to the pit, we began walking around the house. We were out of sight of the road at this point, so we all began using our flashlights. Every window on the first floor was boarded up. Every doorway was nailed shut or boarded over. Graffiti was sprayed on this wood. Dicks were drawn with paint. Curse words were a common thing to see as well. We walked around the house and saw large logs jutting out of an entrance to the basement. The owners made sure no one could enter after Jenna's friends had gone in there. We turned the corner of the house and were greeted with a large porch. A small set of three stairs beckoned us to step up onto it. We saw the floor was made of a dark green painted wood that was beginning to chip as the boards had begun moving over time. The posts that held up the roof were painted a dark gray. The ceiling of the porch was painted gray as well, but we could see that the ceiling was also a grooved wood like the floor. There would be a recessed light fixture in the ceiling every ten feet or so. Shining our lights, we saw that the porch extended around the corner of the house in front of us. We saw a tree to the left of the porch, close to where it turned to go along the side we couldn't yet see. Walking up to and turning the corner, we saw that the porch ended after about twenty feet. Stairs led off the porch to the left, and looking in that direction showed us that the driveway must have ended there. A small dirt space from where a car would once park still remained untouched, not overgrown by the weeds. Looking back at the house, a large piece of plywood sat from floor to ceiling against the wall. This had to be the door that Bryce told us about. Upon further investigation, we could see marks on the lower right corner of the wood around the nails, signaling to us that this was the right spot. James went to the tree by the corner of the porch and found a small red hammer that I remembered seeing hang in my dad's garage. One by one, the nails pulled free, and after a minute, we were able to enter. The corner of the blockade became loose, and I held it back as Mike entered first. He shined his flashlight, lighting his path when he froze and backed out of the entryway. I see someone inside, he hissed. Damien peered in, shining his light. <laughs> it's just a coat rack, you pussy, he said with a chuckle. Each of our group crawled inside. One of the guys laid down and pushed against the wood with his feet, allowing me to slide into the house. I saw the figure standing in the corner of the foyer. The light was shining on it, and I still got chills. A hat 
sat on top of a stand, and a large coat hung from it in the shape of a person. Just the shadow of it would look like someone standing in the corner, waiting for you. Our lights shined around as we got a sense for our environment. To the left of our entrance was a large opening, slightly larger than the size of the door. Further down the foyer, on the opposite wall to our right, was a set of two large doors that had glass panes on the top half of it. The glass seemed to be opaque, so we couldn't really see through it. At the end of the foyer was a hallway that was too dark to see the end of. Before the foyer turned into the narrower hallway, though, on the left was a large staircase. We decided to start with the closest thing first, the open doorway near the entrance. Shining our lights in, we saw that this was a small room, maybe six feet high, fifteen feet wide, and ten feet deep. Lining three of the walls from bottom to top were books, hundreds and hundreds of books. They were all old, some hardbacks, others leather-bound, Some were lined as entire collections and series, and others were just single, assembled together in a row. The fourth wall, the wall that shared with the foyer, had a fireplace set directly into it, and an old tube TV with antennas on top sat against the space near the fireplace. Two nice red leather chairs sat in the center of the room facing the TV and fireplace. We just marveled at the pristine condition of this room. The books were neatly arranged. They weren't moldy or ruffled. The chairs seemed untouched. And the television looked like I could turn it on and watch my favorite shows if I wanted to. We perused the room, pulling out books and looking at them before putting them away. They just had the titles on their leather fronts. No authors or pictures or anything. Mike and James sat in the chairs and commented on how comfy they were. I finally had my turn, and I have to say, they were some of the comfiest chairs I ever sat in. We left the library and continued to the two large doors and tried to peer inside, seeing nothing as our view was obscured by the glass. We turned one of the knobs, and the door clicked loudly, echoing in the foyer and large room on the other side of the door. We pushed the two doors open. They groaned and creaked, making us all wince at the loud, echoing noise. Once the doors were open, we saw a large dining room table, large enough for fifteen people to comfortably sit. The table was covered in a large white sheet that ran to the floor blocking our sight underneath the table. All of the chairs were stacked on top of the table. Each was flipped upside down and covered with white coverings. The legs of the chairs were sticking up like tiny spires. There were two china cabinets in this room, each filled with ornate patterned plates and serving dishes. Silverware, probably coated in real silver, sat in small boxes below the plates, open and displayed. The dining table and cabinets only took up about half of the room on our left, 
The other half contained multiple couches and large chairs, each covered with their own sheet, white, clean, almost eerie, as if freshly placed. Part of me waited for someone to pop out from behind one of these eerie-looking furnitures to scare us. They were put in such a way that it almost didn't seem natural, like someone had deliberately put them there to freak us out. We left the dining room and headed towards the end of the foyer. We all stopped at the bottom of the stairs. Our flashlights showed us what was on the floor. It was a rug. Well, sort of. It was the design of a rug, made of paint. Multicolored patterns and designs of purple and yellow formed a circle nearly seven feet across. This faux rug was located directly at the bottom of the large staircase. The tops of the large banisters were carved wooden spheres that were nearly as big as my head. The vertical railing that held the banister above the stairs were rounded logs as thick as my arm. The staircase was at least six feet wide and went up about a dozen stairs before arriving at a rectangular landing. We could see the banister for the stairs wrap around the landing and go up another set of stairs directly above us to the second floor. We took another vote. Do we go upstairs or explore the rest of the downstairs rooms? Two votes for each choice. James pulled out a quarter. Heads for stairs, tails for the rest of the ground floor. We always broke ties this way. It was up to chance, and no one could be upset at the others if their choice was not selected. The coin flipped through the air, landing just off-center of the painted rug. Tails. We would explore the rest of the ground floor. The foyer narrowed at the bottom of the staircase, reducing to half its size in a hallway. A small closet door leading underneath the stairs was on our left. Looking inside, it was empty. The bottom of the staircase was visible when we shined our lights around. There was a faint smell of cleaning products that lingered in this closet. Bleach and something else. I couldn't put my finger on it. We closed the closet and headed towards the end of the hallway. It took maybe ten steps to come to our next destination. Before us stood three doors, all closed. One in front of us, one to our left, and one to our right. We voted. Two votes for right, one for straight, and one for left. I grabbed the doorknob of the room on our right and turned it. The loud click of the knob was slightly muffled by this smaller hallway. Opening the door revealed a room that spanned to our right, towards the dining room. We looked inside and saw that it was almost entirely empty. There were two large coffee tables and a few ottomans in various spots in the room. The floor of this room was also carpeted, where the rest of the house so far had been hardwood. There were indents in the carpet where furniture used to sit. If I had to hazard a guess, the couches we saw in the dining room were once placed in here, 
We thought that it was odd that the coffee tables and the ottomans hadn't been moved, yet all of the other furniture had been. We explored the room a bit, walking around and finding nothing else of significance, and left to look into one of the other two rooms. We decided to go across the hall, to the door that was previously left in our voting. Peering inside, we saw that this room was the kitchen. A large, open kitchen, with tons of different appliances sitting on the counter. Old blenders, mixers, and utensils that had sat unused for decades. There were at least a dozen and a half cabinets and cupboards throughout the large room. The refrigerator sat in a corner. An old, antique-looking thing from long ago. It was probably one of those ones that you could get locked inside of. We opened the fridge, the seal fighting against us with loud snaps and cracks as it released its grasp. We were greeted with an old, mildewy, musty smell. There were things in the fridge still. Old Tupperware containers that are stained brown. A glass jar of something that was a brownish-green with specks of yellow in it. James nudged Damien and said, I'll give you a dollar to take a bite. Hell no, that thing's got to be older than your grandma, Damien half-shouted, half-whispered. There were glass soda bottles on the door. A bright red, an orange, and a blue. Filled with liquid, rocked slowly as the door was jostled by our nosing around. The bottles weren't soda, but some homemade concoction as they were corked shut. The orange bottle had a piece of paper wrapped around it and taped. It said, Amanda's, don't touch, and had a peace sign drawn just below these words. We closed the fridge, and as the door clicked shut, I think that's when we all saw it. On the far wall was a door. We walked across the kitchen to the door and cracked it open. There wasn't much to see, as behind the door we only saw a narrow set of stairs, turning the corner and going up, out of sight. We turned around and shut the door. The narrow stairs made us feel uneasy. As we turned, the kitchen seemed different. Like, as we turned around to face it again, it was as if somebody had just entered the room. At least, that's what I felt. I can't tell you what everyone else was feeling, as we did not exchange words as we walked back to the hallway towards the last of the three doors. I think of the three rooms, this one was the most unsettling. Opening the door and shining the lights showed us a horror movie scene. The wall was a light yellow, where you could see it. Coating the walls on almost every surface were children's drawings. Crude pictures of bugs, people, family, trees, and objects that seemed like they were around the house and property, like sheds, fields, lamps, and more. There were dozens of these pictures. Hundreds of these pictures. Covering nearly all of the walls. A small, child-sized table sat in the corner with two small wooden chairs. 
On the wall next to the door was an old rotary phone with a chart of phone numbers next to it. Many numbers and names I recognized as neighbors. Some of us examined pictures on the walls, others looking at phone numbers, but all of us avoided the door in the corner of the room. Sat in the corner with two large silver brackets and a thick board across it was another door, shorter than what we had seen so far, maybe four feet tall. It sat silently in the corner, stained darker than the other doors in the house. Eventually, that was the last thing to check out. Mike and James lifted the brace off of the door and revealed to us that there was no knob. The wood brace that locked the door required the knob to be removed. Mike slid his fingers into the space where a doorknob should have been and pulled the door open towards us. There was a small landing, maybe three feet wide. It marked where the ground floor ended and the basement began. A dozen steps descended into the basement. Each wooden, each old and rickety. The darkness of the house seemed to somehow be less in the basement, as if the entire house had an invisible fog through it that we hadn't noticed. Our flashlights seemed to go further, more clearly, in the basement. Damien must have felt the same thing, and began walking towards the steps. It broke me from my thoughts of fogs and darknesses, and brought something else to my attention. A smell. A faint smell of flowers wafting from the basement. I was the last one to descend the stairs and arrive on the packed dirt floor. I'll cut to the chase. The basement was nothing remarkable. It was empty, save for the pieces of logs pushed in and blocking the pathway from the entrance outside. Three thick wood beams held up the house in different areas, and a few broken wooden crates sat in the corner with no sign of what was once in them. Even though there was nothing in the basement, it felt like we stayed in there longer than any other room in the house. We dreaded going back upstairs for some reason. That invisible, oppressing fog of darkness that we could sense almost seemed to be trickling down into the basement. Shining our lights up towards the top of the stairs, they seemed just a bit dimmer. I was again last to traverse up the stairs. As I stepped on the ground at the bottom of the stairs, I noticed that the ground was covered in wood, and I had stomped and heard a sort of hollow sound. By the time I had looked at the stairs again, and then at my feet, and then at the stairs, everyone had already gone up into the children's room, and I quickly hurried behind them. Now, the only place to go from here was up. The four of us stood at the bottom of the stairs. I took a step to climb them when we heard a thud from off to our side. 
our heads shot to look in that direction of the sound. The library. Mike bravely began walking to it. I crouched on the stairs, almost using the large banister as a shield. Guys, come look at this. We all stood beside Mike in a matter of seconds. His light trained on something lying on the floor of the library. A book. One of the miscellaneous books on the shelf that had fallen onto the ground. I walked over and picked it up. It simply said, Idiot, on it. Apparently, it was a classic novel. I just held it up to the guys and smiled. I think old Hag Somerville is trying to tell you something, Mike. I said, holding up the book so they could read the title. What a bitch, Mike scoffed. I put the book back, and we all went up the stairs. We stopped when we stepped onto the landing, turning around and getting our first glimpse at the second floor. We saw a hallway that went over the dining room. Two doors on the right were visible to us. Being brave, I walked up to the top of the stairs and looked around. At the top of the staircase was another door headed left. This place is like a maze, I thought. Gathering in front of the door nearest the top of the stairs, we cracked it open. Dry air greeted us with sweet hints of rot and decay. Scanning the room, we saw this was a craft area. Not for children, though. Straw was scattered along the floor, as well as sunflower seeds. They crunched under our shoes as we walked through the room. There was a door directly across from us, and the room sort of went deeper into the house, towards the middle, to our right. There were dressers that, when opened, showed us loose crafting supplies. Beads, scissors, markers, long, long ago dried glue, hardened clay blocks, and other miscellaneous things filled these drawers. I turned and saw Damien, standing near the middle of the room, staring at a wall. I said his name and walked towards him and saw what he was looking at. In the corner were two masks, creepy, realistic masks made of clay, straw, and other materials we saw in the room. They reminded me of something you'd see used in voodoo or from a tribe in Africa. James and Mike eventually noticed us and joined us, just staring at the masks, not saying anything for a few minutes. Guys, hallway rooms, come on, Damien said, finally breaking the spell. He left what I'm calling the voodoo room and went back to the top of the stairs. The white door sat near the railing of the stairs, standing out from the darkness around it. This room seemed to span over the library and part of the foyer. It was a girl's room. A large dollhouse, all handcrafted, sat against the wall directly across from us. A large bed sat to our right. It had those poles going up on the corners and different fabrics draping down 
over and around the bed. There were other toys in the room. A rocking horse, a few dolls, wood blocks, and some creepy, ragged, stuffed animals. The others didn't want to be here long. I agreed. It almost felt intrusive. Like we were in someone's home, without permission. I mean, we kind of were, but the feeling we had was like they were going to come home at any second. As we left the room and entered the upstairs hallway, we noticed portraits on the wall across from the door. There were five pictures. Four of different kids sitting in those photographer sets with a solid colored background and random prop just behind the subject. There were three boys and one girl all smiling and happy in their pictures. The last portrait freaked us all out. Where the kids had once been smiling, now they were just staring off to the right of the camera. They had the most solemn, stone-cold, emotionless faces I have ever seen. Who were these kids? Were they Anne's nieces and nephews? Bryce had mentioned they came to visit often, and the pictures here showed the oldest one wasn't more than 15. I guess it would explain the kids' drawings as well. The masks and the crafts, though, they seemed too complex for a kid that age to create. Our thoughts and theories were interrupted when we heard two loud bangs from downstairs. Then the muffled sounds of footsteps on the porch. Walking slowly around the house, we froze, listening to the sounds. The steps seemed to be circling the porch, then went silent. A few more bangs echoed through the house a second later. Someone outside was banging on the boarded windows, trying to find a way in. The four of us hadn't moved in minutes. The strange portrait of the solemn kids watching us, almost taunting us with their stares. After we hadn't heard any noises for at least five minutes, we all began moving around a bit. It was as if a collective sigh we didn't know we were holding in was released. We glanced in the second room of the hallway and saw it was a boy's room. Bunk beds sat in the edge of the room. A chest for toys sat at the foot of the beds. A table, a fireplace, and two chairs were in the room as well. Now that I think about it, every room in this house has had a fireplace so far, except the voodoo room and the hallways. We closed the door, as there was nothing of interest in the boys' room. At the end of the hallway was another door on our left. We opened it, and it seemed to be a master bedroom, a large bed, bigger than that of a king-sized bed, sat in the middle of the room. It had beautiful quilts and pillows spread perfectly on the bed. The headboard was made of wood, ornately carved with intricate designs of leaves, trees, and nature. There were a few dressers in the room that had designs that matched the headboard. This room smelled like flowers almost like the basement had. We saw another door 
on the opposite side of this room, and went to it. Yet another hallway greeted us. This hallway was shaped like a T. We were at the top of the T, with the hallway looking directly across in front of us. A window reflected our flashlights from the end of the hallway, and we saw a knob sticking out from near the middle of the hallway and at the end of the hallway, both doors on the left. The hallway spanned down a corridor to our right, forming the shaft of the T. Glancing down, we saw two doors on the left and two windows on the right. We opened up the door closest to us, the first one right at the intersection of the T. The stairs going up to the attic sat before us. The unease swept over us as we remembered this is where Jenna Woods claimed to have been burnt. Well, let's go, I mumbled, taking the first step. The stairs groaned under our weight as we climbed to the top. The attic was two rooms, a large, empty space full of nothing but dust and bracing for the roof. A small door with slats for airflow sat at the end of it. Opening this door, we saw what I can only describe as a drying room. Tobacco leaves hung from the rafters. Heads of sunflowers sat drying long-forgotten and fallen-out seeds. There was a thick layer of dust on the floor, and the soles of shoes could be seen in the dust. There was the smell of old, dried plants in here. Not rotting ones, but just dried, dead ones. In the corner, I saw an area that was cleaned. Walking over to it, I saw words scratched into the wood. You four should know better than to disturb a poor old woman, was what was carved into it. An obvious trick by Bryce, knowing that we were going to be there the next day. We were going down the stairs of the attic when we heard a noise from somewhere within the house. A soft thump, just different enough from our walking down the stairs that our ears caught it. We froze and listened. Another soft thump, but this time we heard a muffled scrape sound following the thump. Thump. Scrape. Thump. Scrape. What did your brother say about Somerville? She had a limp or something? James whispered to me. Yeah, that's what she said. I whispered back. The thump and the scraping continued. We finished going down the stairs, slowly and quietly, and decided to open up the door at the end of the hallway. This door had a key in it. All of the others hadn't until this point. I opened the door and saw a familiar room. The voodoo room. It seemed like the upstairs formed a square loop with the hallways and rooms and had a second hallway that went over the kitchen and the kids' room. The thumping and the scraping was louder now that the door was open. It definitely sounded like someone was near the stairs. Bryce, we know it's you, I shouted towards the sound. The sounds stopped for just a brief moment. 
we shut off our flashlights and saw the glow of a light coming from towards the bottom of the stairs. An orangish glow, not that of a flashlight, but a flickering, dancing light that was alive. It started becoming brighter, and the thump, scrape, thump, scrape, became louder, more deliberate. A breathing was heard, too, ragged and raspy, like the person had to force themselves to breathe. The light began to reach the top of the stairs. A kerosene lantern with a glass top, held by a bony, gnarled hand, is what we saw first. Frozen with the realization that this wasn't Bryce, the hand slowly gave way to a visible arm, covered in what looked to be an old green sweatshirt. Soon the body of what had to have been a woman came into view. She was wearing old, bleach-stained gray sweatpants and a green sweatshirt with a few small holes in it. Her feet had socks that were once white, now tinged yellow. Her face was long and gaunt, wrinkles so numerous it looked impossible. Small bumps protruding from the wrinkles, and dark spots covered her hands and her face. Thin white hair that ran just below her shoulders covered her head. Her walk was slow. In one hand she held the lantern. In another, a cane made from a crooked piece of tree branch. The thud was from her cane, and the scrape was from the leg that hung loosely at an awkward angle behind her. She turned to us and smiled. Her teeth stuck out from the rest of her, as they were stained yellow, but neat and orderly compared to the rest of her body. Idiots, she said, turning towards us and making eye contact. The breathing was heavier now, from the struggle of her going up the stairs. All of us just stood frozen. Us in fear, and her in satisfaction that she could finally hurt us. She made the first move that broke us from the staring contest. She began hobbling towards us surprisingly quickly. She bounded across the hallway into the voodoo room as we slammed the door, locking it with the key. We all jumped back as she slammed into the door. A small shriek and rattling of the doorknob before we heard her tearing out of the room and down the hallway. She was coming around, going through the master bedroom. We ran down the hallway we hadn't yet been through. Flinging the doors open as we ran by, we saw a storage area and a large tiled bathroom. The smells of soaps and oils floated out. The bathroom caught my eye, not because it was fancy and different, but because it was clean, like remarkably clean. The tile glistened the light from our flashlights as we peeked in. At the end of the hallway we were running down was a small corridor. Mike yelled out, The stairs! They have to go to the kitchen! I was the last in the group to run down the stairs. As I began to, I looked back. Anne Somerville had made it out of the bedroom and was running at the fastest pace she could manage towards us. 
She was only two or three dozen feet away. I screamed out, Faster, guys, and ran down the stairs, pushing James and the others out of the narrow stairwell. We arrived in the kitchen. Mike slammed the door as we saw a new kitchen. It was the same room, but redone. It was clean. On the small table in the kitchen was a china plate, silverware, and a glass. The fridge was polished and humming as if it were running. The oven had heat coming from it, and we could smell some delicious food wafting from within. The door that we had just entered through banged as Anne hit it, twisting the knob and opening the door. The hallway was lit with electric lights. We ran from the kitchen and saw the kids' room. Two kids sat at a table, drawing. They paid no mind to us as we ran down the hallway into the foyer. The foyer had the painted rug at the bottom of the stairs, but the area was illuminated by natural sunlight, sunlight that streamed in from the landing on the stairs. A cat sat on the large banister, licking its paw and paying no attention to us. We heard children laughing from the library and voices from what sounded like the television. The front door was shut, and Damien made it there first. He flung it open, and we ran. The lights and sunlight seemed to stop at the threshold. A wall of darkness sat concealing the outside world. We ran into it anyway. All of us arrived on the front porch and ran straight off the few steps onto the ground. We landed in a small pile together and turned around. I shined my flashlight at the door, and it was just as we had left it, boarded up. A rustle from beside us made us all jerk quickly to the side and untangle ourselves. Bryce stepped out from behind the tree where we had found the hammer. He had on one of my mom's nightgowns and wore a white wig. What the hell? You guys were supposed to be in there longer than 15 minutes, Bryce shouted, taking off the wig. What do you mean? James yelled, catching his breath. I watched you guys go in there a few minutes ago and was going to follow you in to scare you. Didn't you hear me banging on the door and windows? Yeah, like a half hour ago, I said, still keeping an eye on the house. You guys get too scared by an empty house? Bryce sneered. We saw Damien was cut off when we saw the glow of red and blue lights off in the distance. Someone must have seen our flashlights and called the cops. Bryce motioned for us to follow him, and we did. He began sliding down a slope that sat a few feet behind the tree. We all followed him, sliding down the shale and the dirt as the lights grew brighter. We landed at the bottom of a steep hill and saw an old four-wheeler path. Bryce had already run a few yards down the trail and shouted for us to hurry. We ran along the trail for about a quarter mile before we saw cliffs, large, 30-foot-tall, sheer rocks that we would never be able to climb. Bryce guided us around the rocks a few hundred yards until the cliffs began to 
recede back into the earth, and allowed an incline flat enough to walk up. We followed the top of the cliffs as they curved back around towards the old maid's house, blue and red flashing in the distance going to the house. Bryce led us through some trees until we reached a field. I realized that this was the field at the end of the lane we lived on. We snuck across it quietly, none of us saying anything until we reached the paved road that marked the end of our lane. So what'd you see in there? Bryce asked. Anne Somerville herself, I replied with a serious look. You probably just saw your ugly face in a mirror and ran, he said, smirking. I smiled too. Bryce could be a dick, but he saved us that night. After walking about ten minutes on the paved lane, we arrived back at our parents' house. I remember that Halloween weekend as one of the best of my life. We broke into a real haunted house and saw a ghost and got more candy than any other year I can remember. I come home to see my parents a few times a year. I moved away from the area after college for a job. Every couple of visits, though, I'll be coming back from a restaurant or an old friend's house and look up into the woods to where I know there's an old Victorian house sitting out of sight unless you know where to look. Sometimes, I swear, I can see a flickering orange light from a kerosene lamp going from window to window.